Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Ghastly Podcast with me, Nick, and Joanna. So this week we continue our meta-horror series with Cabin in the Woods, the 2012 film directed by Drew Goddard and written with Joss Whedon. So Joss Whedon you'll know from Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame and Firefly, the cancelled show that was apparently really good. Did you watch either of those, Joanna? No, actually I've never seen Buffy or Firefly, but I'm well aware of the impact that it had, and especially kind of like Joss Whedon-esque dialogue and humour on a lot of kind of popular culture in the early noughties and late nineties. I think you'd love Buffy, not gonna lie. I do want to watch it. It's just a case of getting round to it, you know? That's true. Having to crunch through all of these films, there's not a lot of time left. Listeners don't understand. We are just constantly watching films. (laughs) Slaving away. We don't even I don't even see my friends and family anymore. (laughs) We're just making this podcast. (laughs) I don't have time for anything else. It's it's not a good work life balance, true. No. And so Drew Goddard, on the other hand, he wrote Cloverfield and Mm -hmm. he also had a hand in creating Netflix's Daredevil, which I've also heard quite good things about. Mm. So Cabin in the Woods is famous for being one of the most on the nose pieces of horror based meta commentary out there. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the entire point of the film, well, as um, Goddard and Whedon described it, was as kind of a, a loving hate letter To the genre. Mm. And I think it's a film which really self-consciously parodies not only the kind of tropes of horror films, but also um, the very purpose that horror has for us as viewers. Mm. And it was written over a single weekend, right? It was, yeah. Imagine being able to just churn something out in a single weekend. That's crazy. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll get that one produced. I guess if you're a professional writer as well, it's easier. Yeah, and you've got the connections of Joss Whedon. Well, yeah. You can do that. You can write something in a weekend and be like, yeah, I think we should meet this. Let's go. <laughs> and also another fun fact. Apparently it was filmed in 2009. It was only after two years in post-production limbo that it was very almost abandoned entirely, but then eventually got released in 2012, which is funny because everyone knows about Chris Hemsworth from Thor which was his sort of big mm. uh, debut in America and the UK, at least. But in 2009, he's just this rando. Yeah, from Home and Away in Australia. <laughs> it's such a weird chronological mess up, that. But um, that's what happens when you make films, I suppose. Kind of convenient in a weird way that it got delayed. Because now you can say you've got this big star who you didn't actually have to pay that much money to. Oh, conspiracy? Mm-hmm. The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Let's get this party started! <laughs> I seriously believe something weird is going on. So Cabin in the Woods starts with a conversation between two laboratory workers who are called Citizen and Hadley. And they're discussing some kind of ritual that's going to take place later. And they complain about a failure in Stockholm and discuss how America and Japan are the only hopes for the ritual's completion. But what exactly this ritual is, where we are and what the ritual's for remains unclear. So we cut to a college town in America where student Dana is getting ready with her friend Jules to go on holiday to a cabin in the woods. Along with the three of them, their stoner friend Marty and Kurt's classmate Holden are also coming along for the ride. As they drive towards the cabin, they have to stop for gas and are met by an unfriendly rural local man who tries to warn them away. 
The gang press on, however, and as they turn around a corner into the woods, we see a force field surround them. All the while, the scientists in the laboratory observe them and comment on their plans for them. We learn there are chemicals in Jules's blonde hair dye that are decreasing her intelligence, and that the scientists are taking bets on which monsters will attack the students first. Back at the cabin, apart from a creepy painting which obscures a two-way mirror, all is well, the students playing true for dare, until they explore the basement, which is full of esoteric and strange items, including a diary, which Dana begins to read. It's the story of a previous resident of the cabin, called Patience Buckner. At the end of the entry is an incantation, which Dana reads out, summoning a zombie. Mm. Kurt and Jules then leave the cabin, and the scientists begin to pump pheromones into the air to try and induce them to have sex. They begin, but as Jules is undressing, the zombies summoned by the incantation suddenly attack her. Kurt and Jules try their best to fight the zombies off, but Jules is decapitated with a hacksaw in front of Kurt's eyes. Yikes. He manages to escape back to the cabin and warns everyone what's going on, imploring them to, you know, stick together like any rational thinking human (laughs) being would. But that's not how things are supposed to go in a horror movie. Mm. So the scientists quickly release a chemical to make him change his mind and encourage everyone to split up instead. I want to know what this chemical is, because does it just say on the tank, like makes him change his mind to not split up <laughs> chemical. <laughs> what exact proportion of yeah, what chemical is being released to, to make him do that? They really glossed over that one. It's not very important, but it was just quite funny how they just have a gas for every mood. I'm assuming it's something to do with the chemicals that they also put in Jules's hair dye to make her stupider. <laughs> but then again, yeah, you know, it's a bit of a bet that in the end uh, releasing that chemical would make someone change their mind in the exact way that you wanted them to. Anyway, whilst they're split up, Marty discovers wires in his room, which seemingly confirms his kind of weed-induced conspiracy theories that he's been having since the start of the film, that, you know, everything is all kind of set up and that he's being watched. But a zombie attacks him and drags him away before he can tell the others. Now... Whilst all of this is happening, the lab workers are looking at what's going on with the ritual in Japan, which involves a kind of group of schoolgirls being attacked by this ghost. It's kind of like, you know, Sadako from The mm, Ring. Absolutely. Wearing a long, like, floaty dress, super long, bedraggled black hair. But um, they managed to defeat her somehow with the power of friendship. It's not entirely clear. And turn her into a frog. And holding hands. Yes. And it's a lovely, happy ending, and they all cheer. It's very sweet. That's great for them, but for the scientists, that means shit. The American ritual's the only one left. So Kurt, Dana and Holden are attempting to escape the woods altogether at this point. They've lost Marty in the RV. But the scientists are able to trigger a tunnel collapse to block their path outwards. So they have to turn back. And then Kurt decides, I know what I'll do. I'll use my motorcycle to jump the ravine and then I'll get help on the other side. Sounds like a pretty good plan. Mm. Unfortunately, as we saw at the beginning of the film, there's a force field around them. They physically can't escape. And so at that point, Kurt literally tries to jump the ravine, crashes into the force field. It's actually quite funny. He's it kind is of, very funny. I felt bad for laughing, but he and his motorcycle just kind of fall down the ravine for ages. Forever. <laughs> I don't know how far that ravine goes down or how deep that force field is, but he's just <laughs> clanking the whole way down. Just bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and then Dana and Holden are like, well, shit, obviously, because <laughs> they see the force field and they realise that, you know, there's more to this. So Dana and Holden then get back into the RV and they try and seek some kind of alternative route, even though obviously there's a force field around them. But then, as they're having a lovely, heartfelt conversation about, you know, everything's going to be OK, Holden is impaled in the neck. And obviously with the driver of the RV now being incapacitated, 
the RV crashes into the lake and Dana struggles not to drown. Now, in the laboratory, the employees are celebrating because the ritual is complete, according to them. You might say, oh, well, Dana isn't dead yet. But from the way that they're speaking, it seems to be that it doesn't really matter if she lives or dies. It's not entirely clear. But then a phone call from the director, whoever that is, alerts them that something has gone wrong. And what it is, is that Marty is still alive. We never actually saw him die. He only got dragged away by a zombie. Mm. And he manages to rescue Dana and explain to her what's going on. Because he's found a hidden lift and it takes him down into the lab, which is underground. And in this lab, where the elevator comes out, is kind of a chamber filled with cages of monsters that are waiting to be released. And then Dana realises as well that all of these monsters kind of correspond with items that they found in the basement. So the diary, which is just one she happened to have picked up, is the one that corresponds with these zombies. Mm. So the staff corner them, but Dana and Marcy manage to release all of the monsters from their cages and they go on to kill the staff, which includes Hadley and Citizen, R.I.P. We barely knew you. Dana and Marty run away. They find a temple with carvings on the wall that we've been seeing kind of cuts of occasionally throughout the film so far. And these carvings supposedly represent the five archetypes that Dana and Marty and their friends represented. Mm. So there's the whore, which is Jules. There's the fool, which is Marcy. The athlete, which is Kurt. The scholar, which is Holden. And then finally, the virgin is Dana. And the virgin is the only carving which isn't already filled with blood because Dana is still alive and they obviously assumed Marty was dead. All of this is explained to them by a mysterious woman, the director, who tells them that this is all part of a ritual in line with American horror film tropes done yearly to appease the ancient ones, who are mysterious gods who live underground and demand human sacrifice in exchange for sparing humanity every year. To complete the ritual, Dana must kill Marty because either everybody has to die or the virgin is the only one who gets to survive. And because Marty's still alive, unless Dana kills him, all of humanity will be destroyed. So she's about to, she's about to shoot him, but then she's attacked by a monster. And then the zombie of Patience Buckner, who is the person that Dana read the diary of way back near the start of the film, attacks the director. And Marty manages to kill both the zombie and the monster attacking Dana. So Dana then apologised to him for trying to shoot him. And they decide that actually they're not going to go through with the ritual sacrifice. And they would rather just let the ancient ones destroy all of humanity instead. Selfish and so they much. sit there, they have a nice conversation as they wait for the end of the world. They share a joint and then the temple suddenly starts to collapse. And then this kind of hand erupts from the ground. Yeah, so they just let the world end. Yeah. And then that's why when people kind of say, oh, you know, Cabin in the Woods is so good. When are we going to get Cabin in the Woods too? It's like, <laughs> um, you you can't. They all, they all very much die at the end. Yeah, not happening. Maybe we're going to get a Cabin in the Woods multiverse where honestly they can just keep but then I don't I don't really know what would be the premise of a second film would it just be focusing on a different team in a different country trying to carry out yeah, the ritual yeah you could have a Cabin in the Woods anthology series <laughs> with like a different episode in each area although again there might not be much dramatic tension because if you do do it in the same universe as the original film you already know that they survive yeah. apart from the Americans well they don't survive they survive and then they all get destroyed anyway. Mm, true. Just think about that. Those poor little schoolgirls singing their songs. That's so true. They worked very it's hard for, for nothing. that. Yeah. And then die anyway. Selfish Americans, honestly. And so did we. Yeah. All of humanity. I don't know. What do you think about the ancient ones? Because 
part of me thinks it's it's just a funny cool idea it's very sort of lovecraftian mm. but at the same time it does feel slightly cop-outy but then it, of course because it's a meta commentary yeah it's very self-aware in its cop-outiness obviously there's a lot of elements of the film that if you really scrutinized him don't stand up true so the idea of the ancient ones that presumably ruled the earth millennia ago and every year there's been a human sacrifice to appease him. Mm. But according to a horror movie, tra- so why, why did the ancient ones know or care about American horror movie tropes being properly adhered to? <laughs> and then, you know, before horror movies, what were the tropes that, you know, what, how did these sacrifices work? Because they presumably took place every year. Mm. Um, how did the people in the lab know about them, etc.? I mean, that's just... We're starting to get into cinema sins territory now, and I don't want to do that. That's true, yeah. But obviously, there's elements. I think the point of the film is like, don't look into it too deeply. Yeah, absolutely. That's not what it's about, is what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that the film suffers from not making complete sense, because that's not what the point is. Mm. I'm not cinema sins. I like the idea of a ritual being performed since, you know, time immemorial. Yeah. And it's taken on a modern format. Mm. It's become this industrialised, globalised rigmarole that has to happen. Well, this is what I think the film is potentially trying to imply. So you know how we've always kind of enjoyed, as a species, ritualised suffering. And so in the past, that might have been public executions, witch trials... Um, human sacrifices to the gods, etc. Well, we I mean, we literally um, did used to do that. Mm, there are shots of uh, sort of etchings of Aztec sacrifices as well mm. on the step pyramids at the opening credits. And so, I think there might be some kind of implication in the film that horror as a genre and kind of all the trappings that come along with it. Obviously, they're very sanitized. It's sanitized in the sense that you know it's not real; it's a film. But this kind of ritualized because obviously horror falls into so many tropes that recur again and again and again throughout the genre. Mm. It's kind of ritualized watching and consumption of the suffering of others, usually younger people, mm. is just kind of a continuation of these kind of public spectacles of sacrifice that humans have kind of always engaged in that are kind of almost necessary mm. for kind of like the global or national psyche. I'm not sure because obviously another thing that's really interesting to talk about, which we'll come on to later, is obviously the kind of national aspect or rather national within a global context aspect of these rituals. Yeah. But yeah, I would argue that the film is trying to draw essentially a line between the enjoyment that we as audiences get in kind of watching these beautiful, stupid young people suffer horribly and die. Mm. And kind of the traditions of public executions, witch trials, human sacrifices to the gods. And I like the implications from that, because if watching and consuming these rituals is something that we've always done, Mm. then that leaves the filmmaker slash film writer in the position of ritualistically churning out these tropes and performing and re-performing this process again and again and again. And that's quite interesting when you look at the complex, which is the name of the sort of government bureau that deals with this, mm. so they're they're almost allegorized as the horror filmmakers at the secret base, manipulating the environments, industry. exactly entrapping 
the individuals in these horrific situations and so that they can perform the sacrifice, they can complete the product and then deliver the product to the consumer. Mm. Does that leave us as the ancient ones? <laughs> Arguably. But then in that case, how do you pair that with the ancient ones also then going on to destroy all of humanity? How does that fit into the allegory? Maybe you could say that the ancient ones are human nature or the subconscious, maybe. No, yeah, I do like that. So it's underneath the earth and in order to maintain society and the idea of things all cohering and working Mm. together in a regimented fashion, you have to keep these unruly, chaotic, destructive beings at bay with this idea of a ritualised sacrifice or act of um, Mm. blood giving. We have to have sacrifice in order to suppress an even greater annihilation. Oh, is Cabin in the Woods just the purge? I don't think so. (laughs) I think Cabin in the Woods is far better than any of the purge movies will ever be. Nick, just to clarify, are we ever going to do any of the purge movies on this podcast? Because I did not like the purge one and I've not seen any of the others since. Never say never, Joanna. I've only seen half of the first one, but... I don't know. Maybe maybe I missed something. Well... People can't get enough. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that's exactly what Cabin in the Woods is trying to say. Formulaic mass production. Mm, True. to stay together. This isn't right. We should split up. Yeah, good idea. Really? We gotta get out of here. Somebody sent those things here to get us. You're missing the point. They want to see us punished. So we have the ancient ones and we have these archetypes that are meant to be fulfilled by the ritual. I want to kind of talk about where these archetypes are meant to have come from or why specifically these are the ones that are adhered to. I mean, I'm assuming obviously they're a reference to kind of very classic horror movie tropes that particularly come out because obviously this movie was made in 2009, as we say. Mm. Kind of looking at the past few decades of particularly commercialised American slasher films and the way in which... So obviously the concept of the final girl, for example, or the virgin in the case of um, Cabin in the Woods is probably the most well-known of these tropes. Kind of, she keeps appearing again and again and again. Sometimes she survives or she's always the last one to die if she does die. Should we just clarify what the final girl concept is? Mm Mm-hmm. The final girl trope was first theorised by Carol J. Clover from Berkeley. And she wrote a super influential study called Men, Women and Chainsaws that basically proposed the notion that there's a type of gendered trope called the final girl that's often androgynous and quote unquote sexually naive in some form that comes face to face with a lethal protagonist undergoes extensive psychological and usually physical torment and then ultimately survives the torment. But Carol discussed at length the issue of identification in these kinds of slasher films and actually ends up concluding that slasher films and stuff can function weirdly as spaces for gender fluidity, which you you don't really expect because you, you think of slasher films as 
very rigid in their binary. Mm. But characters end up actually moving between masculine and feminine tropes quite a lot. And this almost levels off the final girl in direct relation to the antagonist. So they often share a foil-like relationship. So that's basically the foundation of the maiden archetype as it's represented in The Cabin in the Woods. What would you say the most prominent examples of the kind of American slasher film? Obviously, the Scream series is a big one. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street is a classic. Yeah, I think Halloween's sort of the first one, unless you think Psycho is a slasher. Eh. Some people don't think of it as a slasher, some people do. I think it's only thought of really as a slasher because of that scene, you know, the scene. Yeah. And that was super shocking at the time. So I think that's why it gained this um, notoriety as a slasher film as opposed to, you know, a psychological drama or something like that. But Mm. yeah, those are the the big ones. Um, And just recently we had the new Scream. We did. I've not actually seen it yet, have you? And the new Halloween. Yikes. I haven't seen either, no. Uh, I did not hear good things about Halloween Kills, but I still want to see I've it. I've heard good things about Scream. Me too. Well, I've heard um, mixed reviews. I've heard audiences really liked it and critics were a bit more... Eh. Fair. So I think the idea of the archetypes is quite interesting as they work within the film itself, because mm. often there's this issue with meta-commentary, I think, where sometimes it doesn't really gel with character development or character identification from the perspective of the person who's watching it. Well, this is why I enjoy the whole thing of the scientists being there and them kind of deliberately saying, adding chemicals in. And then when Dana is like, what, the virgin? And then it's like, oh, well, we work with what we've got. Like, I like that acknowledgement of like really having to force these characters into this mold because in actuality, kind of the actual characters don't want, they're kind of rebelling against this categorization and so they have to be forced if you think of a film with characters the characters they're definitively not people Mm. because of course they're performing this symbolic role you know uh so they can't have the complexity of people in a very innate sense they have to perform according to their role in the story and in pushing the plot forward but it's interesting that they are given this platform to behave more so i guess as people within Mm. this film because they are, as you say, pushing back against the invisible hands that are trying to steer them towards a certain kind of performance or a certain way of behaving. And one thing I found really interesting as well was um, the kind of opening scene when they're still in the college dorms Mm. and um, they're just talking normally because the kind of ritual hasn't started yet. Mm. And actually the way... It just these little details like Kurt, for example, recommending books for Dana to read, etc. Mm. It kind of shows there is actually, it's ridiculous to kind of be like, okay, well, this one's the athlete. So he also has to be stupid because, you know, the scholar's the only one and maybe diversion to some extent, they're the only ones who are allowed to be smart. Mm. But in actual, actually, that's just not really the case for his character at all. And so it kind of has to be literally the deus ex machina of the chemicals yeah. that they just kind of pump in to the environment. It has to be literally forced out in a ridiculous way. And and it's meant to be unfathomable in a, in a sense. I think it's funny as well how the film does that. It, it shows you that these people are genuinely more than the archetypes that they become distilled to mm. through the interventions of the scientists. 
but you then have that really prolonged scene with um Jules where yeah she she does that ridiculous uh dare where she goes up to the wolf head and she starts <laughs> like making out with it um and then there's that scene where she's just in front of the fireplace like doing a sexy dance for everyone and everyone's just sitting there really uncomfortable <laughs> and I thought that was such a funny surreal moment where she's just enjoying the tension she's just like you know she's just chilling out doing her thing and everyone's just watching her just like mm. what's happening and I was like, oh my it God. got weird and surreal <laughs> I thought it was quite absurdist at some points mm. but yeah I, I liked the fact that it played a lot well of course I mean the essence of the film is playing and playing with these archetypes and not so much dismantling them, but showing an awareness of the constructedness of yeah. them. Um, I think that's as pretty much as far as it goes. And then obviously even the beats of the plot kind of don't necessarily correspond with what you would actually expect. So say, for example, Marty is kind of the full character, mm. but he's the one who's smart enough to actually survive the attempt on his life. And in the end, he's kind of proven, although arguably you could say that this is kind of a thing with full characters, even before the experiment starts again, et cetera, he's saying like, oh, well, you know, guys, you know, everything's a conspiracy. Mm. We should just reset humanity and start again. You know, the government is watching you. And he does turn out to be proved right on every count. He's a bit of a prophet as opposed to being a fool. Which I think is an interesting yeah, more of a duality. Cassandra yeah, type figure. What the? What the fuck? Uh oh, that's not good. Out of the way! Out of the way! Out of the way! Chem department, I need 500 cc's of Thorazine pumped into room three. No, 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 no. Stand by, Cam. Judah Buckner to the rescue. What the fuck? What the fuck? Oh my god. I'm on a reality TV show. <laughs> my parents are gonna think I'm such a burnout. Meta commentary is interesting because it's very often so preoccupied in itself with the big ideas that it's trying to put forward that it kind of gets rid of the idea of a subjective point of view or inhabiting the viewpoint of one character. Mm. And I think you can see that in the film, but the fact that it removes you from any one character or has you staying for too long with any one character is, is ultimately because of the split between the scientists on one side and mm. the um, characters who are experiencing the fallout from the cabin on the other. Speaking of which, I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the scientist characters? We do spend a lot of time with them. They're not just there as kind of like plot fodder as like, okay, so this is happening. Like we actually do get a genuine kind of insight into their dynamics. Yeah. I mean, the very opening scene of the film is them talking about like baby-proofing a room, obviously kind of implying a life outside the entire horror film. I guess there is an argument for saying that they're the they're the real protagonists. Mm. What I like most about it is that the film didn't use the oh it's a government conspiracy or oh it's a it's a constructed sort of plot um, to do X Y and Z as the twist. They didn't do that. They yeah. had the film begin with what would have been used by other writers as said twist, and that was of course super jarring. 
And I think there was even some reports that the studio were not wanting to start with such a jarring first scene for a horror film because they were worried people would have uh, people would get confused and then walk out yeah. of the screenings. Um, but I'm so glad that they did stay with that because I think it's so much more interesting and so much more original to have the two threads going along in parallel. Well, it's especially pertinent as well, as you say, because, I mean, the whole film is called Cabin in the Woods and all the marketing is kind of focused on this rural, rustic, kind of like dark, middle of nowhere cabin. Mm. And so it's very jarring to start the film and your first introduction to that world is a very clean, bright, shiny, sparkly lab. You think what is going it's on? It's like, what? The contrast between the really rural cabin setting and then the very high-tech, quite clinical, quite sterile surroundings in the compound itself. Mm -hmm. And it leads you to wonder how the film explores the ideas of artifice and reality. Mm. When they enter the complex and they sort of enter the, the reality rather than the constructed reality of the cabin, it was a bit like that scene in Westworld where one of the characters from the Wild West world accidentally enters into the behind-the-scenes area with the long metallic corridors and the clinical lights, and it's almost as if they've stumbled into hell or a sort of nightmare scape. And I think this film does feel a bit like a theme park, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. There's this really interesting article that Catherine J. Wagner wrote about placelessness as it relates to Cabin in the Woods. So just very briefly, placelessness is an idea that was first developed by Edward Relf in his 1976 book, Place and Placelessness. Mm. It's the condition of an environment lacking significant places and the associated attitude of a lack of attachment to place caused by the homogenizing effects of modernity. So there are given examples, including commercialism, standardized planning regulations in cities, alienation, um, obsession with speed and movement. So it's basically summarising what it's like to be in a contemporary city. Uh, so you can feel a bit better of yourself from now on if you feel a bit stressed out or if you're at a loss because, you know, you're in London and you can't find your way around it. But it's actually just that you're having an existential crisis and it's not that you just can't use City Mapper. <laughs> you can start to look at the cabin itself and the manipulation of the environments of the cabin as akin to a sort of theme park. And theme parks are almost an ideal example of placelessness because they create an artificial world in themselves and they're hyper real and they're sort of oversaturated with signifiers that are taken out of their proper place. Time and space collapses into one another. It's a bit like Disneyland in the way that it's rebuilt over and over again throughout the world. And that connects quite nicely into the idea of the ritual being performed at the same time, all across the world in these different locations. It's almost as mm, if it's, it's being... It's so much a global phenomenon. It's being carried out in all these different places. You can really easily see that as a parallel for a kind of consumer project. And that links in nicely to the idea of the horror film in itself as a product that is sold to then the ancient ones. And the ancient ones either accept or reject it. Well, one thing that I find so interesting, including about what you just said, about how it's kind of a critique of the consumerist globalism, but also um, kind of the horror film industry in particular, is that the last two countries standing are America and Japan. And obviously, apart from America, so for example, Japan is definitely 
the biggest exporter of horror and horror films. And it's also obviously kind of a major world economy and probably the most major economy aligned with Western interests in Asia, for example. And so that's why I thought it was really interesting. They were like, oh, Europe's failed or Europe's failed at first heard or it's just America and Japan now and then Japan fails as well. And then it's this kind of American exceptionalism that they that the scientists actually literally so they're like, look, if you want anything done, you've got to go to America. Mm. And these countries are, as you say, they're pitted in direct competition with one another yeah. in the same way that, yeah, in terms of economies, they're in direct competition. But it also uses it as a sort of platform to mock mm. the, the native stereotypes of each tradition. For example, as you said, the Sadako-esque creature in the children's classroom, yeah. who they imprison in the frog's body, is a, like a, a quintessential um, jab at... J horror, isn't it? Although I something that I did wonder about, and I was wondering what you thought, just as kind of like more of a bit of fun than anything else. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it shows some of the things that flash up on the screen. It's like Stockholm, Madrid, etc. It's like what's what is the Swedish <laughs> horror film tradition? Not in a rude way. <laughs> I haven't. I just haven't seen enough Swedish horror films. You know, I wonder what their ritual would be. A lot of nasty gnomes. Oh, troll hunter? Would it just be a lot of trolls? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Nasty gnomes. Nasty gnomes, terrifying trolls God. and naughty nissers. I hope there aren't any Swedish people listening to this. We're so sorry. I need to know the truth. We'll do a special series. Yeah, let's do a series. They should, have, they should have done like an Italian one. They should have done like a Rome bit and then it could be like, you know, your classic giallo. Oh my God, they could have had all the, the whole coven, the Suspiria coven yes. in one of those little boxes and then released them into, I don't know, some kind of old... Italian building or something like that. That would have been fun. In the cellar. All of that shit we were playing with. They made us choose. They made us choose how we die. Globalization as a film does take up a weird amount of screen time in this film. And that moment that you referred to earlier when Kurt's recommending um, different econ textbooks to Dana also feeds into these bigger ideas behind the film of globalization and economics, literally. The film is also aware, because on the one hand, you can say it's kind of a pastiche of capitalist globalization and kind of America's role at the centre of all that. But it also specifically acknowledges the roles in which, say, for example, entertainment, and then within entertainment, the film industry, and then within the film industry, the horror genre, also is kind of this... There's this sense of every country having its own kind of tradition, but at the end of the day, the juggernauts are Japan and America, Mm. and even then, America is the last one left standing. Because this is the thing, when we talk about capitalist globalisation... A lot of the time, we don't just mean like interconnectedness of countries. It also generally often is synonymous with Americanization, especially in, say, the entertainment industry. I think we take for granted um, the fact that we are English speaking. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know about you, but 
the other day I just sort of paused and thought, imagine if I was born in Hungary or if I was born in Laos, where your language is not by any means a globalised language. It's only really spoken in that country. And also there aren't any major cultural exports because the dominant, you know, cultural exporters in this case, America, um, will only... And it's easy to, it's easy to interest, say, for example, Hungarians in kind of American popular mm. culture. Maybe they'll be dubbed over into Hungarian or subtitled. Mm. But like, let's be honest, Americans, you say to them, oh, does this rate... Not all Americans, obviously... But like American, the American entertainment industry, you say, oh, there's this amazing Hungarian TV series, absolutely incredible. You guys should like license it for airing with like maybe an American, an English language dub or at least subtitles. Yeah. And a lot of the time they're like, yeah, whatever. No, no one's going to, no one's going to want to sit through and watch something that isn't American or at least mm. in English. Like you're saying, even two years ago with like Parasite winning at the Oscars. Yeah, and that was such a watershed like moment. You still get loads of think pieces and there's still think pieces in like newspapers being all like, how how did Korea manage to do it? How have they broken through? <laughs> like, And like even people like criticising the Academy being like, oh, well, you know, do we really want to watch like a subtitled oh my God, yeah. film? It's just the Academy trying to look special. Trying to look different. I think it's 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 bonkers when you think about it because it's such a regulating force on what everyone consumes mm. in terms of culture and media. And the Academy is so flawed when you actually think about the Oscars and how things get voted for and who's actually in the Academy and how membership works. Yeah, guys, why isn't Alana Hayman nominated for Best wow. Actress? Sorry. Calling the shots. Um, that's not the phrase. Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're at an insane advantage in terms of our habits of consuming media and being able to partake in the dominant cultural outputs. Because we could, in terms of probability, you could so easily just be speaking a different language in a different place with a film industry that's completely throttled by the American behemoth. I mean, I've mentioned this enough times on the podcast, but even the English-speaking British film industry is fairly throttled already. It's like starting to wheeze. But um, getting back to Cabin in the Woods. Yes. So what do you think then the implication is, I suppose, of the idea? Because obviously there's like an ironic tone to it. I don't think we're necessarily meant to sympathise with the scientists and be like, oh, yeah, so mm. true. When they're like, oh, God, well, if you want something done, then go to America, you know, that's high-quality product. Because they do but fail at the end of the, the, day, end of the day, Yeah, they? they do fail. But also, I suppose it is kind of America is the last, the last man mm. standing against kind of the destruction of humanity and arguably, you know, that can play into all these kind of like Cold War true. ideas of like America as the defenders of freedom. It's reinforcing this idea of... American exceptionism in the sense that they are in a position of charisma, uniqueness, nerve and talent to protect <laughs> the, the world and at the same time protect their primacy economically, socially, culturally, uh, particularly in this film. And I think you can relate that back to what Catherine J. Wagner said in her essay about placelessness in Cabin in the Woods is that it seems to dig into this anxiety we love talking about American anxiety in this podcast. We do. <laughs> so much American anxiety. Well, I mean, I guess to some extent, though, it does make sense. And it makes sense, I think, with also what Cabin in the Woods is trying to say. Because obviously America is 
probably the biggest producer of horror films mm. that we look at. And I think that is at the crux of a lot of kind of the modern horror film. It's kind of a way of processing these anxieties that we have. And obviously Kevin in the Woods kind of takes that to a literal mm. point by being like, we are using horror as a substitute for the violence that we as a society inherently are addicted to. And it's the only thing stopping us from totally annihilating ourselves. And you can connect the sort of the placelessness mm. of Cabin in the Woods to that sense of burgeoning American anxiety because when you export a culture to the extent that it has been done through the, the you know the mechanism of Hollywood and it's been made everywhere is now America, if that makes sense. Because um, you've got, yeah, I, I don't know why I'm I'm really on the Disneyland theme park vibe today, but Disneyland is so essential to the the kind of marketing project of American culture. And when you think about all the different Disneylands across the world, they're all there to replicate the same experience that you would have had going to the original Disneyland in California. And even that Disneyland was meant to be representative of this essential American spirit. And it was meant to summarise all the best things about American culture and being American and loving America and being super duper patriotic. And now all across the world, in Hong Kong, in Paris, in Shanghai, you have all of these sort of mini Americas in the form of the Disneylands. And that habit and that idea of sort of theme parkizing society, it's it takes root in all these countries and the the idea of modern architectural methods and city planning and organizing education, for example, it's all being constructed in the shadow of what America did. So everything's being made in the mold of America. So place is starting to get lost and culture is getting homogenized around the world and in and it's funny because that starts to reflect back on america and america starts to lose its uniqueness when all other countries start firstly competing on the same platform in terms of its you know economics its culture but then also start rivaling America using the tools that America, quote unquote, established. Does that make any sense? No, completely. I think this is a really good point, especially with the linking it to the kind of theme park thing that we spoke about earlier. We have no idea at any point where any of this, it, like, it's just the cabin in the woods, you know, even like the title. It's just like the generic place in the generic yeah, place. Yeah. And like even, let's like, say, if you just compare that even to things like, say, 30 years previously to the film or it's like oh you know like a film like Nightmare on Elm Street for mm. example it kind of condenses all of these kind of horror tropes into their most generic form into their most like replicable form to the point where they're like yeah we could be anywhere right now we're just in the American yeah. woodlands we're in an American college town absolutely the sense of, of of a backstory or a history to any of this is completely lost because you have the story of the sort of pioneer family who come back as zombies and attack the the kids, but the story is invented, isn't it? As are the family that have been. I don't know what they do. Do they grow these zombies? Do they? That doesn't need to be explained. It's fine. But th this sense of history and age and a background to, as you say, the cabin in the woods 
is completely constructed um, in the same way that they pump smells into the atmosphere and all this kind of stuff. And it was probably just an empty building site until they built this cabin and then invented this family that didn't actually live there, but, you know, they just need a backstory for the zombies. And it's definitely allegorical to the process of filmmaking in itself. The idea that yeah. what you're seeing on screen could have just been in a studio lot in Hollywood, for example. It's nowhere near a cabin in the woods. It's all fake. So that adds another layer on top of the meta-commentary that's already going on in the film. I'm sorry I let you get attacked by a werewolf and then into the world. Oh. You were right. Humanity. Time to give someone else a chance. So this film got, I'd say it got positive reviews. I think I think that people saw it as a bit of a game changer. I think that's the vibe. Mm. Um, do you think this film is innovative? And do you think that meta commentary equal real innovation in a genre? I think it depends how you're defining innovation, in the sense that like, it, to be innovative, must it not only be do something new to the genre and also kind of set the tone for like other filmmakers to like evolve from what you've done because I would say that it didn't really necessarily I know we've just covered two films which are kind of later on in the timeline than Cabin in the Woods I would say it's innovative in the sense that this is a really fun pastiche of horror that acknowledges it so openly and really you know a character will be like splitting up and be like wait why are we splitting up it's not just kind of like oh you know a little self-aware wink it really strips those themes kind of down to the bone with the whole like ritual sacrifice element and the lab yeah. and the tropes yeah and i really think that that is innovative mm. at least in a commercial sense in a sense like a commercially successful widely popularly appealing film to be able in horror to be so self-referential and to be so like, I suppose, to trust the viewers as well as get it. Because, you know, obviously there's a kind of real problem in pop culture right now of like not trusting viewers to understand what anything slightly daring is trying to do. I do think it is innovative in that sense. Yes. Do I think that it's necessarily like changed the game for horror forever? No. Mm. Although maybe, to be fair, I guess there is kind of perhaps a lot more reluctance these days to kind of I can't really think of many big slasher films that have been released in the 2010s that aren't like already sequels to pre-existing franchises and so perhaps there is kind of this hesitancy now to fall into the exact same old tropes maybe there's like more of a pressure to innovate but do I think do I think that this film was innovative in and of itself yes do I think that it like changed the game for the genre no what about you? I agree with you in the sense that it is representative of, of a quite a big moment for 
meta commentary on a popular scale yeah. for a film like this to be able to exploit meta commentary in its own structure to get people into cinemas i think that's quite impressive especially the fact that it was written back in 2009 as well you know just three years earlier mm. but i think it's probably tied into my own prejudices against uses of meta commentary because sometimes so well i mentioned this last episode but you know the use of the ancient ones it's quite a good ticking clock you know it creates justifications in the plot and also works in its own sort of ridiculousness as a way to poke fun at the horror genre itself but nonetheless it 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 works in its own laziness if if that makes any sense it sort of uses the unimaginative sort of trashy cliches of horror which can be great i mean please don't get me wrong i'm not being sort of superior to any of this i, lo- I you know i we love a trashy cliche but that's nonetheless what it is, but it uses it as a reasoning for its own exploitation of the cliche in the end of the day. Mm. And the film itself is doing all of the things that the film says other films do, which is part of the point, I think. There's that sort of cheeky, ironic, postmodern sort of mm. sense of hopelessness where... Very Joss Whedon. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the idea of like, if modernism was like, let's find the way out of this, let's find the real truth. Postmodernism's like that edgelord in the background going like, ha there's no way out, it's all fake. You'll never know the truth. There is no truth, ha-ha, psych. I think the problem with these sort of postmodernist ways of writing in film is that it gets tied into this sort of malaise where everyone sort of gives up in a sense. And I'm not saying that Cabin in the Woods represents giving up, but you have to be quite careful because postmodern attitudes, it, it creates the worst kind of writing sometimes, where it's this quite obnoxious combination of slightly lazy and then also really self-satisfied. You can recycle tropes again and again and again, but you're doing it in a self-aware way so you can feel really clever about it. And it can also make you feel like you're not meant to enjoy any of these cultural products. Mm. It's been done in good faith. But I think what would be the worst thing to happen is if Cabin in the Woods comes out and then all horror films become meta. I think that'd be the worst thing in the world. Everyone would just want to get back to something sincere and genuine and actually escapist rather than just constantly being reminded that they're watching a film. Mm. So I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion of Cabin in the Woods for now. And what we're going to be moving on to next week, we're going to be carrying on with the meta-horror theme. And we're going to be looking at the 2007 film directed by Michael Haneke, Funny Games, which is a very interesting example of a film, which is a shot-for-shot remake of a previous film. So the original film was also directed by Hanukkah and was made in 1997. So this should be a really interesting one. So thank you for now so much for listening. We'll see you again next time. And yeah, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.